Welcome, welcome, welcome. Wednesday, we're going to give it a second as everybody just comes and starts filing. Hey, let that beat breathe a little bit. Let it breathe a little bit. Let us let us enjoy the, the tunes. Maybe hit us with a little boom, 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 boom. <laughs> Wednesday, Wednesday, Wednesday. I'm loving it. This is great. We have a great episode today. I'm super excited about this. The, the stock that we're diving into today is, it runs the world. If people don't know, it literally runs the world. And I don't think you understand. Like we talk about a lot of companies with patents. This is like probably one of the kings of patents when it comes to this company. So I want to go ahead and give a few shout outs. We got Brian, we got Daniel, we got Dave, we got Elsie Herbert. We got Jay, Jose, Kevin, everybody. Thanks for hanging out with us today. Obviously, we love that you're here spending time with us. Alexis says, hi, guys. Hey, back to you. So let's get some uh, housekeeping out of the way. Why don't we, Josh, why don't you go ahead and throw up that first live? We'll throw in up the disclosure just so that everybody is aware. Uh, all opinions in this show are the opinions of Austin and myself. And these are not investment advice. So obviously, do your own research. Oh, what a beautiful background. Look at that. That's nice. I need to do that. I need a background <laughs> like that. My background is like a sunset or something. I need more of these like mosaic, beautiful we'll colors. Anyways, disclosures out of the way. I think everybody knows. Everybody hears it all the time across the internet. Not investment advice. Do your own advice, uh, research as well. Um, but let's get into this. I want to just mention, as I do every week, we are now on Apple Podcasts. If you guys haven't already, please jump over there, leave us a rating or review. We love to hear your feedback on the show. Love what to hear. You know, share it with a friend. If you think somebody would be interested in what we're doing here, all the stock analysis, having experts from various industries come on and talk to you. I mean, last week with Alex King, how great was that? Huge, right? That huge. guy dove in. And if you haven't listened to the episode, go check it on Apple Podcasts. I'm gonna go ahead and drop the link here in the chat for everybody. You can find it right there. And with that out of the way, I want to go ahead and just start by doing a quick overview of the market with where we are but right before now. Before we do that, Daniel, I just want to remind everyone, right? Drop the comments, drop the questions, drop the feedback, drop the uh, unique perspectives, right? We are two people on the internet trying to build a community, a tribe of people that uh, want to learn and talk and discuss ideas. And so if you have a comment in real time, we want to get to that. We want to share uh, everyone and give everyone a voice here. So with that being said now, let's get into the markets, Daniel. Let's get into it. So let me see here. I'm just trying to find, make sure that the screen will pop up for some reason. Hey, Josh, can you check the share settings for me, actually? I'm not seeing the ability to share that. And if that's, if we don't get it, then we don't get it. We'll just move on. Actually, let me just do it this way. All right, let's see. I'm just going to dive in this way. Here we go. So hopefully you guys can see what's on my screen right now. Let me know if you can't. We're going to start off with the volatility index. Obviously, on the volatility index, do not pay attention to the moving averages here because you can't use them. It doesn't do anything for you on the volatility index. All the volatility index is the state of the market, right? So the VIX coming back down to that 20 level, which is the long time average, just so that you know. And what does this tell us right now? It pretty much tells us like, the market is anticipating everything that's going on right now. We also know that, you know, end of the year, institutional investors are kind of stepping away from their desk, going to enjoy the holidays. Things are a little bit uh, relaxed, if you would say, um, at this moment in time. Dollar index as well has fallen and stabilized, which should be great for earnings going forward, right? Um, with all the companies that have come out and always said, you know, we made this much money, here's our margins and everything else, but on a normal currency basis. So hopefully we can start moving past that discussion on earning calls now that the dollar is back down to the 104 level. Let's look at SPY real quick. So I was doing some research on SPY. Obviously, we filled the gap below the market, which I've been pointing out here for the last few weeks. 
We still have the gap way above the market. And we now have a gap that we're trying to fill today. I mean, we had the consumer number, or the confidence numbers come out this morning. We entered the gap, but we have since pulled back. So we're keeping an eye on that. We have the cues, which is the tech sector as well. We're trying to hold on to this long-term trend line. Where does that trend line come from? Well, if I switch back to the weekly chart, you can see that I took it from the very top of the old trend line that once it broke through, it has become support. So we're seeing if we're waiting to see if that support holds. If it does hold, then we see rotation back to the upside. If not, of course, we will look for a bottom, which a lot of people are talking about right now. Uh, you know, maybe the market doesn't bottom until February, March, April, May of next year. I've heard a couple of different months like that all laid out so far. And then let's go ahead and look at the IWM Russell. This is the weekly chart, just so you're aware. We've been kind of consolidating. I remember on the daily, we mentioned last week that all the moving averages are consolidating. They are still consolidating. Something I want to point out, though, is the 20-day has hinged lower, but the 50-day is still hinging higher. So we're watching the, the moving averages as they cross over each other. Obviously, that affects quant programs typically. Um, not all the time. Depends on what the institutional investors are doing. Do they turn them off for the holidays? Things like that. You got to keep in mind. But sometimes they run nonstop because they're systematic. And once they program them, that's just what they do and they let them run. So watch the volume as well. Volume is a lot lower today, which is something I'm noticing, uh, which is not a good sign. Typically, we want to see the volume increase with the direction of the move if you're a momentum player. So that is your quick look at the markets. So, so before we move on, though, Daniel, I think what could be really uh, beneficial to people who are listening on a podcast and maybe not be able to see these specific charts, if we could flip back for a moment to a couple of these, and I know you've, you've got some of the Fibonacci retracement levels there. Um, if we do break through on the cues or you know, if we do break through some of these uh, support levels, what are the specific kind of call outs there as to where we might expect to maybe see some support like the specific numbers? Yeah, so let's start with the SPY ETF, S&P 500. So I'm going to go ahead and start and just get rid of that Fibonacci. I'm going to show you guys what's been going on here. So obviously the low back here on October 13th, I started from there and drew to the most recent high, which was December 13th, funny enough. And we saw a bounce here at the 50% retracement, which is interesting. Uh, I always say I like to watch the 50 and the 0.618, especially the 0.618. You're not always guaranteed to get back to it. Usually the 50 can act as a good point of resistance. And we're seeing that here. Uh, obviously, we're going to watch to see what happens there. But if we think that this was the completion of the move to the upside with that bear market rally, as everybody called it and called it perfectly, I'm going to start my Fibonacci level here at the top and draw it down to what we just saw here at the beginning of the week for the low. So you got the 50% here at the 394 level for SPY ETF. And then the 0.618 is uh, excuse me, around 398 right now currently for the SPY ETF. So I'd be watching those. But obviously, we like to watch the gap fills as well. Top of the gap here at 389, roughly, you know, typically 80% of the time, once gap fills, they see a little bit of a pullback in the direction opposite of the trend. So something to keep in mind there as well. So if we go over to the cues real quick, obviously the Fibonacci levels you see here on the screen, if you're joining us live, is from the move of the market through COVID, right? So we came down, we tested the 0.618 level here. We saw a little bit of a bounce here, but if we come back down, hopefully this will act as more support in the future if we get to that. No one wants to see the market crash, right? We've already been <laughs> Definitely not. heavy market this year, but there is a gap above as well. The hard thing that I personally think about this gap is that 200-day moving average is below the gap. So mm. if it was, I mean, this is a big move. You would have to have a big move in the first in the first place, right? That's 10% move just to get back to the bottom of the gap there. 
and you might hit that 200 day moving average. And that's pretty solid resistance until you can break through it and stay above it. Again, 20 day moving average hinging lower. 100 day is very just downtrend mania. 50 day has kind of stabilized here a little bit. So something to keep an eye on there. So if we're doing a Fibonacci level for the most recent move that we're seeing here on the queues, we've got a few levels to watch. Like the 50 is right here around 281 level. The 618 is back up here around 285. Um, and obviously you can see the exact numbers over here on the side of my screen. I'm just kind of eyeballing it here. And then lastly on the Russell, we'll just do the most recent move. Uh, so we can keep going. So I take the highest point, which is back here actually on November 15th and to the most recent low. And some levels for here is, I would say the 50% move would be back to 180, which takes you almost back to the 20 day moving average here, which is interesting for a snapback effect. And then the 618 is closer to the 182, and that's on IWM ETF. Love it, love it, love it. I appreciate you uh, pulling that out for us, Daniel. Thank you so very much. So, no problem. Here for the people. Josh, would you mind go ahead and throwing up the poll uh, so we can go ahead and get some people here engaged with us? We want to know, there's only a few day trades or trading days left. Where do you guys think that the market is headed by the end of the year? Austin, I've got to ask you, where do you think the market is headed? Uh, ooh, before the end of the year, that could be really hard. I, I really think we're going to see a little bit lower. I don't think we're going to see any big moves up or down, right? I just really don't. But starting next year, right? Q1, I really think we're headed lower. I do. Mm, I think I'm in the boat where I, I'm, I would love to see a Santa Claus rally. I would love to see you, a Santa you and your rally. Santa Claus rallies. You've been talking right, about Santa this Claus rally last five trading days of the year. And then the first two days of January typically is the Santa Claus rally, uh, January effect, whatever you want to call it. But I think I agree with you. I think in January, I've started to hear whispers, right? People, companies don't want to lay off people during the holidays, so they might wait. And then we might just see a complete tidal wave of layoffs in January. So that's something that I'm watching. Of course, mm. people get laid off. They start to watch it, what they're spending. Uh, Josh, let's go ahead and end the poll and see what the results are. Where are Where's the market headed towards the end wow. of the year? 56% say higher, 44% here today say lower. Thank We're you. We're split? We're pretty much split? I don't know, man. That's that's still higher. And last week, the answer was higher as well. I'm team higher. We'll see where okay. we go. Okay. Team higher. Team higher. We'll, we'll see what happens. We'll see what happens. All right. So let's go ahead and dive into uh, initial thoughts, shall we? Let's do it. Want to kick us kick off? It. I'll kick it off. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Let's do it. All right, so I'm starting off actually from something I pulled from one of your posts to your subscribers within Cashflow Freaks when you put out your articles, The Investing Week Ahead. So you threw this in there. Josh, I think we have the slide for it as well, if you wouldn't mind throwing it up. It's about retail investors versus institutional investors. And you had this quote that said, this year, US equity mutual funds and ETFs have attracted more than $100 billion in net inflows one of the highest amounts on record going back to the year 2000. According to Goldman Sachs, institutional preparation for stock market pain hasn't been fully reciprocated by individual investors. Households typically sell about $10 billion in stocks after the S&P 500 falls at least 10% from its peak, which happened in both 2015 and 2018. With the S&P 500 on its way to its worst year in more than a decade, Wall Street is curious to see how much longer the average Joe can stand the volatility. And of course, you added these as well, showing all of that. So initial thoughts, Austin, what's going on here? 
So here's here's how I'm looking at it, right? If we take a step back and think about the Fed's raising interest rates, you know, 25 bips, and then we had 75 four consecutive times, and now we've got 50 bips rate. Like the Fed is raising rates at the fastest pace in history, but I'd argue that despite you know increased credit card uh, interest rates and you know very interest rate driven specific financial products, the everyday person likely hasn't really seen or been impacted by these rate hikes, right? Uh, I mean, sure, unemployment has ticked up a little bit. We've seen layoffs a little bit, but a lot of people still have a little bit of flexibility within their, um, I, I would say, wallet, right? And so at the end of the day, I, I think that things are going to turn around much. Uh, you know, We're going to see the opposite of that in 2023, but I don't think we've seen yet the everyday person have a, a big like moment of, all right, I'm starting to get nervous. My stocks are down. My the equity in my house is not what I thought it was. My debt's piling up. Interest rates, ABC, XYZ, right? So I don't think that's like happening yet, but I do think we'll see that in in 2023, right? You pair the the 2.3% uh, historically low savings rate, lowest we've seen it since October of or I'm sorry, uh, June or October of 2005, since the year 2005. We now have credit card debt mounting at 1.2 trillion dollars. Or the Federal Reserve calling for 4.6% unemployment by the end of 2024. Right now it's at 3.7, right? So they're saying pain's going to come. We've not yet seen that pain, right? So pain's going to come. I don't think yet that average person has really seen it. But when they do, one, that could be a, a cause for capitulation. That could be a cause for market bottom, um, which is another reason why, again, you know, back to what I just said, I think we have some further downside to, to expect in the stock market. I don't think a lot of these retail average Joe investors have, have begun to, to feel the pain of interest rate hikes in a meaningful way. Therefore, uh, they're still net buyers. Love it. I want to ask everybody that's joining us right now, go ahead and jump in the chat. Let us know. Do you think we've already experienced any form of capitulation that the market's like seen? We've seen June, we've seen October lows. Like, does it have to get a lot worse? Let us know your opinions in the chat. I want to know that. And then also, John, I see you there. Only a few days left to trade and invest in the market for the rest of the year. I see that as well. All right. So going on to number two, Bespoke just put this out this week. So on Monday, Amazon officially became the first of the mega cap companies to see a $1 trillion, trillion drawdown in market cap. So all six of the mega cap companies being Amazon, Google, Apple, Microsoft, Meta, and Tesla are all in $750 billion plus drawdowns for a combined drop of more than $5 trillion. So I want to know, what are your initial thoughts? Is this the buying opportunity of a decade or of a century? What's going on here? I really, really like Amazon and Google and Tesla's a different story, right? It's kind of weird to see though that Apple hasn't really seen that that big drawdown like the others have, right? But I think at the end of the day, um, yes, I, you, you back up and you think, okay, from a strategy perspective, from an investing perspective, what companies can I invest toward during the looming recession? If we see one, when we see one, whatever your opinion is, what companies uh, could we invest toward during this looming recession? Obviously, ones that have been here for decades, ones that are going to be here for decades to come. Those are your mega caps, right? Those are the Amazons, the Googles, the Apples, the Microsofts, the Teslas. And Tesla's kind of a, a touchy subject for people, but Amazon and Google for sure, right? Especially Amazon. And so, yeah, I mean, I'm a net buyer of Amazon and Google right now, especially Google, I think. And I got a question for um, regarding Google for you here soon, but 100%. I believe that, um, you know, Buying opportunity of a generation, that's kind of strong word, wording there. I do, again, I, I do think as the market trades down, hope, uh, not hopefully, but likely in the coming, uh, call it maybe four to six months, that these mega caps will also uh, move in this sort of lower direction. But 
which could give you a better buying opportunity. But right now where we are today, I'm a net buyer. I like it. Love it. Love to hear it. Jose over here says it's going to drag along the bottom a little bit longer before we get any real capitulation. Thanks for letting us know that. I mean, if if we have capitulation this next year, mega, tech, mega cap tech has to get hit as well, right? Oh, 100% it will. Yes, absolutely. And I will also want to mention too, like, like you know, we, we think about these leading economic indicators that, you know, companies like Morgan Stanley, just like, like we, we've seen the LEIs across the board point toward contraction in the economy. And if you overlay, I think I saw a chart recently where you overlay these LEIs and sort of the momentum to the upside and the downside from a economic um, momentum perspective with the stock market and the bottoms, LEIs, all the leading economic indicators have always turned up to the positive uh, momentum before we've seen a stock market bottom, right? And so to think about like, you know, capitulations and bottoms and things of that nature, the stock market, uh, the stock market, in correlation to where the LEIs are pointing toward right now has not bottomed, right? LEIs are still moving down. The momentum is still negative. Uh, we've not yet seen it kind of take that curve and, and turn back to the upward uh, direction. Yeah. We'll have to have our uh, good friend, Eric Bazmachin back on here to talk. All oh about yeah. The, you know, oh yeah. Macroeconomic. I mean, that guy's killer when it comes to that. Um, all right. Lastly. So we've got people over here. We've been talking about the average show. We've been talking about consumers. Jacob over here says the average show is resisting a bit to be panic driven based on prior experience if they were news driven. Um, so we're talking about consumers, right? So that leads me to my third one for you today. And it's actually another one that you pointed out in your service for people that you were watching this week. And it just happened yesterday after the close. And that is Nike earnings. So we're talking about the consumer. We're talking about everything. People are slowing down everything else. Nike, the last time I checked, the stock is up 13% today after earnings. And let me just run through this real quick. China revenue dropped 3%. That's eh, not that bad. But revenue in Asia, Pacific, and Latin America was up 19%. North America revenue was up 30%. And Europe, Middle East, and Africa was up 11%. Nike direct sales were up 16% to $5.4 billion on a reported basis, but up 25% on a currency neutral basis. There we go talking about currency again. Their slight margin drop was mainly due to North America and them trying to liquidate their inventory, as well as some higher shipping costs and, again, currency. What are the thoughts here? So you beat me to it. I've yet to dive into Nike's earnings. I just heard the numbers now for the first time from you. But, I mean, at the end of the day, right, you kind of take a step back and think, as we look toward, um, I, I guess, like the idea of private labels versus wholesale versus uh, retail sales. I mean, we saw that those were down just the other week, right? If if Nike is able to continue to drive sales to their private label, to not have to mark down their their products, to not have to say wholesale this, wholesale that. I mean, things certainly look like it's, it's what you described that they're able to do that. Um, I think they would, would then deserve this 13, 14% pop in stock price, right? And I think we even saw that kind of being translated in a positive manner towards Lululemon as well as um, uh, what's uh, the uh, Under Armour, Under Armour as well, right? Um, so to be quite honest, I don't have all the data, but uh, it looks positive uh, on the surface. Yeah, well, then I got to say, I can't wait to see you put out your thoughts on it because I was looking at it and I was <laughs> like, this is, this is incredible, right? Like after last earnings, I mean, I believe the stock was down into the high 80s uh, yeah. for share. Yeah. Now today, I, I don't have it in front of me, but um, let me just look it up real quick. I mean, the, the stock is completely ripping. It's almost like the consumer. I mean, even if you are doing discounts, the actual hit on their margin was barely anything, which I'm like, okay, they still have pricing power. The sales that they're doing, you know, it, it's the psychological consumer effect. Mm -hmm. So I think like mm -hmm. consumer is still strong. The consumer thinks they're getting a great deal, but really Nike's like, <laughs> no, we're still good.
you know, uh, <laughs> no, no, we're, we're good. We got it. Share price <laughs> is up to $117 right now. As I'm looking at it on seeking alpha is up 13.3% on the day after earnings. And of course I saw Lululemon, as you mentioned, is moving as well in regards to that. hundred percent. So now let's jump to you, right? So Google's YouTube apparently is an advanced talks to buy the exclusive rights to the NFL Sunday ticket, a subscription only package that allows football fans to watch most Sunday afternoon games. Just the other day, I was kind of mulling over the idea of switching from Hulu to YouTube TV. Um, the prices are much more comparable now. Google stock prices down like crazy recently. We just talked about that. Could YouTube TV be maybe the next catalyst for Google? Is YouTube now maybe more than just a uh, video sharing platform? I mean, 100%. I think it's more of how do you propose that? I mean, I don't know if you've heard the whispers is... The conversation about Disney spinning out of ESPN is is happening again. Like we talked oh, about okay. that a while back, right? Um, that's starting to hear whispers again. They want them to spin off ESPN because the amount of debt on the contracts to hold all the the games and everything is is incredible, right? For a tech company, it's a lot easier. They don't tech companies don't have theme parks and every all you know hundreds of thousands of employees that they need to take care of like Disney does. So. Would YouTube TV become a competitive player? I think they have the potential to. I think it's competitive in regards to when you think about something like a Hulu, which we also talked about. It's like Disney buying Comcast stakeout, having Hulu, integrating that. But then it's like, okay, well, then who's competing on that front? Sure, you have all the streaming services under the sun, but I think people are still so ingrained to go to YouTube. I mean, the usage is higher. YouTube Shorts has taken off. If YouTube becomes that destination where people are already going, YouTube Music as well. We didn't even talk about that competing with Spotify mm-hmm. and everybody, uh, Apple Music. I think that is that 100% has the ability to continue to drive revenue ha- higher for that segment. I love it. I, I definitely uh, I like all those answers. So now kind of flipping gears to airlines. So apparently no more paying for Wi-Fi on your Delta flights as the Finally. company is expected to begin <laughs> rolling out free wireless internet for its passengers as early as 2023. Is this a needle mover? Is it a needle mover? Are you going to say I'm flying Delta now because I have to pay eight bucks for Wi-Fi? And I was already flying Delta. That's why I'm saying finally, like, would I buy Delta the stock? No, airline stocks, I will not touch. We've had this conversation. I w- I don't like airline stocks. They just the the business model and and the cost of jet fuel and all the turnaround times of you know leasing their their runways and or not the runways the um the the, the gates and the yeah. Gates. yeah 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 how they do it I mean and then how they pay their their airline attendants when they're on the ground versus in the air and it's like eventually union problems as well and the shortage of pilots like it's just it's such a complicated industry right but it's also it's like the railroads right it's part of the backbone of our country and if it ever gets to a dire situation just like the government has stepped in to help with the railroad strike they would step in to help with the airlines um as we saw again with covid you know giving them all the bailout money to help them get through um i love that Delta's doing the free Wi-Fi. I will continue to fly Delta. I fly Delta for many, many reasons. Um, it's a nice add-on for me for just not having to expense the extra money that I would anyways. Uh, but would I buy the airline stock? No, I wouldn't touch it. 
So the so so what I'm hearing is now you're more loyal to Delta. You were expecting this, you were excited for this, but now that they've done it, it's like, okay, now I'm really in. I'm I'm excited to be flying Delta. Now there's no reason for me to be thinking about Southwest or anything like that. You're a you're a Delta lover. And now well, they got the Starbucks. Full disclosure, stuff, right? full disclosure, right? I mean, I am based in Atlanta. So their headquarters here. Okay. Yep, 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 yep. Delta Hub. You can fly anywhere in the world. You can go to Europe, you can go to Hawaii, you can go to Texas. You can, I mean, Delta goes so many places. It's awesome. Got it. So last one here, and I think we touched on this just very uh, quickly. And actually, I want to share my screen uh, to show you all this, if you don't mind. So let me share my screen quickly so we can all see what I'm talking about here. I'll zoom in a little bit. So the Federal Reserve is expecting unemployment to rise to 4.6% by the end of 2024. Currently, we're around that 3.7% range. But historically speaking, the Fed has always underestimated the rise in unemployment by some 2.5%, which could mean we're headed to a 6% or higher unemployment rate. Do you think the Fed is on the money here, or are they underestimating things again? And I've got this little visual for y'all that can see it here. In the blue is the Fed's forecast, right? How, how much higher they think unemployment it's going to rise over the coming however many months. And then what really happened um, in that time period, and we all saw what happened in 2008, well, which is actually like an anomaly. You can't explain 2008. I mean, that was- uh, Right, that's an anomaly. Uh, yeah. 2001, what is that based off of? Just a normal year after dot-com bubble burst with 9-11, mm -hmm. which very influenced. I mean, 1973, you got the inflation years. And I mean, okay, so- <laughs> The recession side of things, I think. I think the 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 data was inflation typically breaks when unemployment goes over five percent. I think it is. Uh, yeah, five it's or, like five somewhere, or six. Somewhere or around there. Yeah. But I think if I was the Fed and I'm hundreds of people with PhDs running about around a building trying to say our models are right and X Y Z. I think really they just kind of step back and they look and go, okay, well look at all the work we've done, look at all the tightening we've done so far, and unemployment is still under 4%, right? So maybe if we were supposed to get over five, maybe th times are different for whatever reason, maybe it's technology and efficiency of, of running businesses or whatever it might be, right? Let's just shave off a couple of tenths of a percentage point and maybe people won't say anything about it. So, but if you say that they're always, I mean, they're behind the curve, they're down on their numbers. I mean, they always want to paint the perfect picture that they want to achieve, but obviously they can't control everything as we all know. So 4.6%. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's, that's where I think January and the start of this next year will be a pretty interesting tell of how bad it gets. Um, I mean, I would expect more out of technology, high risk growth names, things like that, where it's not easy to just raise debt anymore. So January, well, I will say March. too, you know, to that point, and I really like that you mentioned, um, you know, these. So, so uh, I'm working on a piece right now for Cashflow Freaks, uh, specifically that talks about um, this unemployment. So let me see if I can find it here. Yeah, and Jacob's um, pointing out here in the chat. I mean, 1981 with the the interest rate going over 16. That was the Volcker uh, time of crushing inflation, right? Like having to do whatever it took to get inflation down because inflation can honestly crumple governments. I mean, look at South America and everything that's happened down there. Absolutely, and and to the point of the uh, you know the the job openings and labor turnover survey, we saw there were 10.3 million vacancies for the month of October, which was down by more than 760,000 from a year ago. And that same survey showed us a downtrend in the quits level. Right, these are people who are quitting their jobs to try and find something better, trending toward 4 million compared to 4.5 million in March, right, just nine months ago, which suggests people are less confident about their prospects of finding employment elsewhere. So. Um, yeah, I, I think to your point, right, January is going to be really telling time.
Yep. Time will tell. That wraps it up, right? Was that three? That was three. That was three. All right. Initial thoughts completely over. Now, guys, as before we dive into this next part, we're going to play Guess the Stock, which we haven't done in a few weeks. I'm really excited about it. But I just want to get to some of the people here in the chat joining us uh, live. So Enrique is talking about Amazon. Amazon is looking at a dire future. It's AWS is in a downtrend and is the most important source of gain. So stay away from the stock. Enrique, I'm not sure about the Amazon web services. When we think about cloud adoption, cloud adoption still has a long way to go. And when you're talking about what's being, how does the cloud work, right? Well, it's about having your files stored there, but then the download and upload of all of the bits. And it's what's called the egress fee that Microsoft Azure and, and Amazon Web Service charges. I mean, it's like 0.003% per each poll of whatever, but like that adds up over time. And as files continue to get bigger, because we're, we're streaming a 4K video and eventually 8K video and things like that, I think you might want to continue to to look at how that happens with how they charge um, their customers on usage fees. Uh, Henry says, what's the story on the semiconductors? Why is UMC, for example, with double-digit revenue gains so cheap? Interesting. So we're going to talk on that actually today here in a little bit. So Henry, stay tuned right there. And then Layudamila. Sorry if I pronounced your name wrong, but what about investing in energy and which one's stocks? So energy is actually a space that I'm still looking at personally. Um you know, we've seen gas prices come down almost like what fifty percent now. Like, wait, so you don't think the energy trade is over? You're still thinking about energy as a really okay, dude. We are not, we are not getting off of coal that fast. That was like, I think it was a story of the administration, which is what he ran on. So you can't blame him for it. Like he was definitely pushing, you know, his agenda. I think when you really actually look at, like, think about airlines, right? That's the easiest use case. Is we can, we cannot build. A, a airline uh, 747 jetliner, an Airbus A320 or whatever they are, like you can't build those with battery packs because they'd be too heavy and they can't fly. And and jet fuel is coming from oil and the coal and, and energy. It's all interconnected. And I just don't see it happening as fast as people are just expecting. So obviously, if you look at the energy sector overall and look at the multiples compared to the overall market, I mean, energy stocks got hit based off of ESG and everything else. And it's just, I think, a matter of time until people realize, like, there's still a little bit of alpha there. So it's just more of like, what companies do you look at? I've already disclosed to everybody. I'm still a shareholder of ExxonMobil, have been for quite a long time. I'm talking about years. Um, obviously, look at Chevron as well. Those are the two big names that make up the most of the XLE. So just keep an eye on, on that as well. But let's go ahead and play guess the stock. Let's get into this. So you guys know how it goes. I list off a couple of facts about the stock. And if you think you know what it is, drop in the chat. What you think it is, you can do the ticker symbol or the company name, and we'll let you know who gets it right. So first up, this large cap company is currently based out of San Jose, California, so U.S.-based. In 2019, the stock was announced the fifth best stock of the 2010 decade with a total return of 1,956%. Both of the co-founders, uh, both of their first names is Henry. You have Henry Samueli, who is the owner of the Anaheim Ducks, for all the hockey fans listening, and Henry Nicholas, who both went to UCLA and founded this company in 1991. On August 9, 2019, news sources reported that this company had decided to acquire the enterprise security business of Semantic Corporation, which the consumer software portion of which is now known as Norton LifeLock, a name most people know. And they acquired that for $10.7 billion in cash. 
Any guesses coming? Oh, I got to scroll down here. Sorry, guys. We got Jacob and John with the right answer. We are talking about Broadcom people, ticker symbol AVGO. And the thing is, we got to give a shout out. John, I think John kind of cheated a little bit. So this recommendation actually came from John via Zoom oh, right here on the episode it. a few weeks back. John, we're finally getting to Broadcom. We're diving in today. Glad you're here hanging out with us, buddy. So let's get into a history lesson real quick, because this is weird to me. Please, please. All right. So try to stick with me here. On November 18th, 1999, Agilent Technologies IPO'd to the tune of $2.1 billion as it was being spun out from a company that I know we all know called Hewlett Packard. Okay. So it's a division spinoff IPO to the public market called Agilent Technologies. KKR and Silver Lake Partners acquired the chip division of Agilent Technologies in 2005 for $2.6 billion and formed a new company called Avago Technologies. Okay, so we have Avago and we have uh, Agilent. On August 6th of 2009, Avago Technologies went public on the NASDAQ with the ticker symbol AVGO, which we now have. And on May 28, 2015, Avago announced that it would buy Broadcom Corporation for $37 billion. It was $17 billion in cash and $20 billion in shares. And then when the acquisition happened, uh, Broadcom Corp, or sorry, Avago took the name Broadcom and of course kept the ticker symbol AVGO, which is why we have Broadcom and AVGO now. Then that Broadcom acquisition by Avago strengthened the patent position significantly making the company the ninth largest holder of patents among the top semiconductor vendors, according to analysis done by technology consulting firm Lexanova. And I want to break this down. So this was their article from 2015. It said, Avago's own patent portfolio is small, with around 5,000 patents and patent applications. But when combined with patents and applications assigned to its recent acquisitions of these five different companies, LSI, PLAX, Emulex, Cyoptics, and Infineon, the number of patents in its portfolio rose to 20,304. However, wow. that's still slightly less than the 20,689 patent and applications that Broadcom has in its portfolio. So it would rank ahead in patents of the combined merger, right, of Avago and Broadcom combined is like 40,000 patents plus. Ranking them ahead of Taiwan Semi, Texas Instruments, SEM Microelectronics, and NXP Semi. And this was back in 2015, so I don't have all the updated numbers. It is only behind the three logic vendors being Qualcomm, Intel, and Renesas, which is a semiconductor company in Japan, for those that don't know. Um, and then you get into Samsung, Toshiba, and Micron, and stuff like that. But talk about a company that thrives off acquisitions, right? Patent that power. is unbelievable. So I, I so funny you mentioned. I've always wondered why it's AVGO, right? It's like Broadcom. Maybe that doesn't make any sense, but now it makes total sense. Wow. So and on top of that, real quick, I know yeah. you want to jump in. You got all the all the numbers and everything, but also to remind people, back in 2017, Broadcom proposed to purchase Qualcomm, right? Qualcomm, who had uh, what did it say? 76,130 patents. They proposed to purchase Qualcomm in a hostile takeover attempt for $130 billion, but it was uh, crushed by the U.S. government on safety concerns. Man, we all love a good hostile takeover, don't we? Pesky Man. U.S. government. Letting us we we haven't even touched on VMware yet, which I know we're going to get to. <laughs> oh, gosh. All right. So 
let's talk about this $230 billion company, right? Ticker AVGO. Uh, they describe themselves as a designer and developer of semiconductor devices, specifically those with a complex digital and mixed signal complementary metal oxide. Say that 10 times fast. These CMOS chips are the same ones that power computers, consumer appliances, automobiles, and even rocket ships. The company operates in two segments, semiconductor solutions and infrastructure solutions. Over the last 12 months, these uh, I'm sorry, over the last 12 months, the company of Broadcom has generated $33.2 billion in revenue. That revenue was split 78% in their semiconductor solutions business segment and 22% in their infrastructure uh, uh, solutions business segment. This $33.2 billion figure is up 21% over 2021 figures, and this was mainly catalyzed by strong partnerships with customers and the accelerated adoption of their next-generation technologies. We'll talk about that here. So according to the most recent earnings call, they're specifically optimistic about a few things in 2023 uh, as it relates to their growth profile, uh, with their CEO quoted saying, we demonstrate our continued discipline in shipping our strong backlog only as and when needed by our end customer. So in contrast to weak consumer electronics spending today, and despite concerns of a global recession, we believe overall infrastructure spending remains strong, and we continue to experience sustained demand in most of our end markets, and this is what we continue to see. So I'm seeing just on the surface here, Daniel, a lot of momentum, a lot of reasons why their management team is kind of excited here for 2023. Is there anything that's sticking out to you so far? So to follow up on exactly what you just said about the backlog. So the big thing about earnings calls is they're not giving forward guidance right now to everybody. Correct. Yes. Um, and we talk about that in a little bit. But yes. But the thing is, is they talk about their backlog and they also talk about how when you set up your order with Broadcom as a customer, those are non-cancelable orders, which mm. is why I think they believe that they are such in a strength like they're, they're in the perfect position to just be like, once they have that contract signed, you can't back out of it. You're getting the delivery of the chips, whether you need it or not. I had no idea. And that actually makes a lot more sense now that you say that, because we're going to talk about how they didn't give guidance, but they're still saying that things are going to be good next year because their backlog is completely full. And like, exactly. it's okay. So that's, Exactly. I didn't know that. That's interesting. All right. So as we dive a bit deeper into the recent earnings release, we learn a few important things, starting with their semiconductor solutions business segment. So this segment is specifically made up of networking, broadband, server storage, wireless, and industrial revenue. Of the five different sort of components that make up this business segment, networking specifically saw a massive 30% bump in revenue growth. This was driven by their deployment, right? Back to that idea of the new products that they're deploying, right? The Tomahawk 4, for their hyperscale data center customers. Management is expecting this networking component of that business segment to grow 20% next year. Um, now, I'm going to be honest, a lot of the trends that you know I see as it relates to this company's fundamentals are pointing up and to the right. And again, to your point, right, talking about guidance, despite management not providing 2023 guidance due to some deteriorating uh, macroeconomic backdrop and, and things of that nature, they did reiterate that their order book is completely full for 2023. Very, very cool. But my general take on the company, and we're going to talk about you know the VMware acquisition and valuation and things like that nature, um, the company's PE ratio, in my opinion, is 
price to perfection right now at 14.6 times. So uh, let's actually pull up an image I think that you guys might have. I pulled it from Fast Graphs. And what it does is it overlays the company's stock price on top of their uh, sort of historical trend in uh, price to earnings ratio. So I'm going to wait for that to get. Yeah, Josh, you got that slide that you can throw one up? There you go. Wonderful. So as you guys can see here, the, the stock price is in black and this blue line is their uh, earnings per share, right? This is their average uh, historical, what they've been trading at over the last several years. And if we kind of take a step back, we can see, oh, wow, their stock price Weirdly enough, has traded exactly with that. It's a perfect historical. And, and as you can see right here, the stock price again in black is price to perfection, showing that it is, you know, all that value, all that whatever could happen next year is already priced in, right? So at 545, I'm sorry, $544.02 a share makes me weary that might what come in 2023, like if there's any kind of, um, you know, maybe uh, something that comes out of left field or something we didn't expect, right? Like, I mean, things are priced to perfection right now. Daniel, as you look at this graph, is there anything that's over here telling you like, I like it, I don't like it? What's what's specifically talking to you here? Hey, man, when you look at it, it's up and to the right. So what is there not to like? <laughs> it's up and to the right. It looks good. And I also love that it's underneath the blue line. Like if you take that as almost like a, uh, like a mean, right? Like an average over the years. I mean, look at that. Imagine if you were back in, what was that? Like $14, I think it was a share way back in 2009. Oh my gosh. Alpha. Insane. So um, let's, let's take down this image now and, and talk a little bit about the VMware potential merger. So um, just so we're on the same page, right? VMware, ticker symbol VMW. Um, I, I believe actually Daniel could probably add a little bit more color as to what that company does versus um, Broadcom. Yeah, let, let, let me just jump in real quick. So VMware yeah. is another company and I'll let you finish up. I'm just going to give a, a brief overview. Please. They hold a lot of patents as well. Right. So it's another patent company. And this is this is Broadcom's playbook. Right. They are fabless. They do not own a fab like Taiwan Semi, which is pure fab or Intel has fabs and they design chips. So all Broadcom does is they go out and they acquire other companies that are creating chips that they can either integrate in their portfolio or they just buy the patent and then go and sue companies like Apple or Qualcomm or whoever's trying to use it or, or, or Samsung. Sorry. Like. They just go and that's their playbook. And that's how they generate so much revenue based off of fees of the patents. Well, VMware has some great patents that's kind of like, I mean, it goes back to early 2000s, I believe even, where it's just like some of the most used patents that they have is from those early years, which will fall off here over the next few years, but you can still capture that plus everything they've added on. And you're talking about like taking data off of one computer and putting it on another computer. Like that protocol and that process is from a patent of VMware. Got so it. Digital stuff. Which I guess would make a lot of sense as to now why the European Commission uh, has announced a couple of days ago that they've opened an in-depth investigation to assess if the transaction would allow Broadcom to restrict competition in the market for certain hardware components, which um, really work well with uh, VMware's software. Specifically, this is what was released, right? The Commission's Preliminary Competition Concerns. The Commission's Preliminary Investigation, there's a quote now, indicates that the transaction may allow Broadcom to restrict competition in the market for the supply of NICs, FC, HBAs, and the storage adapters 
by degrading interoperability between VMware's server, virtualization software, and competitors' hardware to the benefit of its own hardware and or foreclosing competitors' uh, hardware. Pretty much saying, you know, at the end of the day, monopoly vibes, not good stuff, really concerned about it. And at the end, they, they kind of conclude with, uh, this in turn could lead to higher prices, lower quality, and less innovation for business customers and ultimately consumers. Now, I don't know much about the company. of You obviously know much more about both these companies, I think, than I do. Um, I also like, you know, I think of the idea of like massive mergers like this, right? There's a lot to uh, analyze. There's a lot of scrutiny. There's a lot of people that are involved. So it's hard for me to comment on what might happen. Um, but just to kind of wrap things up about Broadcom here for a moment, right? I'm cautiously optimistic. They're still calling out strength uh, across cloud enterprise and telecommunication. They're showing no signs of service storage weakness. Their backlog is completely booked solid. Their dividend yield is 3.4%. Free cash flow was up 25% year over year. They plan to spend, fifth, I'm sorry, 13 billion in uh, share repurchases here. Uh, a lot of fundamental reasons to be excited about the company and, and to your point, right, pointing up until the right. So I'm buying weakness if we experience any, which I mean, as we continue to see this acquisition unfold, we, we certainly might. Yeah, no, it's a lot of grip. I want to go ahead and get over to the chart real quick after uh, like a little pause break, right? Let's go ahead and check out what the price. I mean, obviously you showed the chart. I mean, if we go back to the monthly, I think we see the same chart that you did. I mean, obviously this thing, yeah, back here, the low of <laughs> in 2009 was $14.33, but let's get more granular. Like what's going on right now? Well, obviously ever since the COVID low of, of when the share price hit 155.67 and the entire market puked, this thing has done nothing except go up into the right. And why is that? Because Everybody was home buying, you know, computers and, and new phones and data centers had to be aggressively ramped up with all their spend and, and who controls literally everything. Like there is probably not a piece of technology on this world that operates without some sort of a Broadcom patent or chip design or whatever it might be. It's one of their acquisitions, right? They legit run technology of the world, which is crazy to think about. Um, so that's why it's like, well, who are you going to buy? You can buy Broadcom. And then you go on to mention about dividend yield. We'll get to the dividends here in a second. But so all I did for the Fibonacci levels here is I drew from the, the beginning of uh, January of last year. And of course, we've seen the entire market pull back. So the interesting thing that immediately stuck out to me about this specific uh, stock is remember how the market puked back in June? And mm -hmm. June was like mm -hmm. the bottom for the year, right? Of the overall market. Well, this didn't do that, right? So back here in June, July, it found a bottom but its bottom is actually here in October. So it's kind of interesting how that works where it's like, oh, people really didn't think chips were going to get hit that bad back last summer. Um, obviously, as you mentioned, there's now worries about what's going to happen this next year. If we go into recession, if you're seeing recessionary fears, even though CEO came out on the last earnings call, uh, CEO Haktan, and he said, in contrast to weak consumer electronic spending today, and despite concerns of global recessions, we believe Overall infrastructure spending remains strong and we continue to experience sustained demand in most of our end markets. And this is what mm -hmm. we continue to see in the Q1 and the Q1 actually ends at the end of January. So keep that in mind. Um, so this is like, this was their last earnings call. And I think from here, people are like, oh, because we mentioned how you can't cancel orders and everything else, this company is back to being safe, quote unquote. Now, obviously, if recession does hit and all their customers take a hit, they might see a hit going forward into the next year, which is what I think you're seeing here, like long-term play thinking, right? So there's still time to figure out what's going to happen here. But we see the bounce off the Fibonacci level, which is something that stuck out to me. However, 
if you're going into patterns and you want to talk about technical analysis patterns, if we get a pullback here, and it could be even back down to this 38.2 level, right? And then we see it turn back around and come back to the 618. That's almost like a perfect inverse head and shoulders. And, and if you don't know what that pattern is, it's pretty much say like, imagine there's a neckline here. Okay. And then you have a shoulder here, you have the head here. And if we have another shoulder here and bounce to the right and then breaks through the neckline, it'll probably come back. It would retest. But then the move after that, and, and all patterns are is psychologically the market, right? It tells you what the psychological people behind making the moves are doing. What you do is you take the neckline, you draw it to the lowest point of the head, which is 35% here. And then you turn around and you draw that 35% the other direction. And that takes you all the way up to this extension of the Fibonacci level, which is pretty crazy, right? So you're telling me that the, the technical analysis wizards out there are looking at this as an inverse head and shoulders. And the way to describe that is, well, I guess the way to predict it or trade it is to see the, the distance between the, I, I'm new to this stuff. It's so the, the neckline. The, bottom, yep. the, neckline? So the okay. neckline, the neckline and the highest point of what's called the head, right? So you have the head and Got the shoulder. It. Mm -hmm. um, so that's, you take that, sorry, I said 35%, it's actually 25%. You take that 25%, you immediately inverse it from the neckline, and mm -hmm. that should give you the implied move of where we're heading next. And that's strictly and So what's that analysis. number? What's that number? So that's up here about seven, 749.21 is that Fibonacci extension level that you see there. Um, and that pretty much lines up pretty close. 25% is, okay, maybe not exactly there. I was off. It's over 700. That sure sounds uh, exciting. <laughs> that's exciting. So that's something I, I would keep in mind. Obviously, things don't have to play out this way, but just from a technical analysis standpoint, that's something that you could see. Now, there's no time frame on when that'll pan out, right? Anything can happen. Um, we're obviously above the moving averages. It's above its 200-day, which is favorable. The 20-day is already crossed over. The 50 is in an upturn. The 100-day is starting to upturn. You got a few gaps below the market here, but it's an interesting chart and in, on the daily time frame. So something to keep in mind. What does the weekly look like? Has the weekly closed above that that 200 day yet or no? Let me go ahead and go back real quick. We're looking at the weekly time frame. The weekly is above all the moving averages as well, but they're not positively stacked yet. So until got that it, it. back over the 50, that is what some quant systems like to follow is if the moving averages are stacked, then you could buy. If they're not, you don't touch it, right? Different kind of strategies out there. So it's a quick look. All right, Josh, you with us back there? Uh, if you don't mind throwing up that next slide, we'll keep the show going. I got a couple more things about Broadcom I want to point out real quick. So let's just run through these. Uh, that was an awesome slide talking about the VMware. Let's go ahead and go to the next slide. There we go. So, of course, oh, Avago Broadcom, we touched on this. We can go ahead and skip that. And I want to get into this. And this is what's surprising to me. So one thing about Broadcom is they have their wireless chip sector, and they have one customer that makes up the entire sector of the base. Um, so they formed this, and they filed this form back on January 23rd of 2020. And at the bottom is what I want to point out. So what it's talking about here is... It entered an agreement with Apple to be its largest customer of these chips that it makes. Okay. They signed a three year agreement and it was like $15 billion or something like that. Well, where does my mind go? My mind goes, what 
came out within the last three years? What was going on in this sector? Well, of course, we got the new phones. The the M1 semiconductor chip came out, the new MacBook Pros and everything. But we're coming towards the end of that three-year mark, right? We're at the end of 2022 right now. I am expecting there to be an eventual agreement announcement again of them re-upping this deal. But I think Broadcom's going to flex pricing power on Apple. And I think you're going to see this be a driver for the stock price. Daniel Snyder with the predictions. I love it. Okay. And that's what I'm coming. That's what I'm coming with. So just wanted to point that out. Obviously, they have to file it publicly. So something to keep in mind. Let's go to the next slide. Let's go back to VMware, right? So is VMware going to happen? That's what everybody wants to know about Broadcom right now. So of course, as you mentioned, the EU is looking into this. United States government has to look into it. It's, It's a worldwide ordeal, right? Like Broadcom being the patent powerhouse that it is, where it goes and it buys a company, acquires it, slashes, you know, the labor and expenses and just folds in the patents. And um, obviously, Broadcom, what do they do? They don't have a fab. So they just spend so much money on R&D on their latest uh, earnings. They said they spend like $4.9 on R&D for the quarter, right? Like they're they're spending money like crazy. Um, But also with the revenues, the CFO, Kristen Spears, pointed this out on the last earnings call, said, Free cash flow in the quarter was $4.5 billion, representing 50% of their revenue. 50% of the revenue just being free cash flow. Come on now. Come on. How crazy now. is that? Like we talk about free cash. Oh my gosh. Anyway, so VMware patent portfolio. This is going back to 2002. Like I said, they, they've been around a long time uh, filing patents, innovating the whole thing. What happened here in 2020? Well, it's not that they didn't stop filing patents, it's that patents take so long to get through the system. Okay, so I, I I strongly believe that this fall off here is just the reaction of what is actually coming out that they have filed. So I'm sure there's something still in the backlog there as well. Let's go ahead and go to the next slide, Josh. <clears throat> Excuse me. So this goes back just another form of how it all fills out. They're granted the majority of their patents, which is crazy. So there's a lot of like people do statistics on who cares if you file the patents if it never gets granted. And so they like use that as like the strength of the company and how smart the engineers are and everything else. I think the number was something like 98% of all patents filed by this company get granted, which is, that huge. is wild. That is absolutely insane. Yeah. So next slide, Josh. And who uses all these patents? Well, the United States of America, right? So when you talk about Broadcom, Broadcom used to be a company over in Singapore. They were trying to play nice with the Trump administration. They moved over to the States. They now operate here. That was back also when they were trying to close the Qualcomm deal, which obviously got shut down because Qualcomm probably has you know chips in our military equipment or whatever it might be, right? So there was a little bit of worry there with the China stuff. Um, but next slide, I think about who's the companies within the United States of America that are using mm, all of these okay. And these, again, this is for VMware, right? Mm-hmm, you have mm-hmm, IBM, mm-hmm. 979, Microsoft, Red Hat Inc., which spun out of IBM. You have Amazon. Bank of New York, Mellon Trust, Intel, Cisco, Hewlett Packard, Citrix. I mean, names that you know, right? All of these companies are paying patent fees to VMware. So what is there not to like? Of course they want the company. I mean, that's what they do. They just acquire patents and then they monetize them. It's brilliant. So let's you go ahead a, and look. What's that? I was going to say, you did a really good job of, of painting that picture. I mean, I had no idea that was the case with VMware. I mean, I, I understood, obviously, patents are patents, but... IBM, Red Hat, I mean, Microsoft, that is crazy. And not to mention, so when they did the Qualcomm deal, remember Qualcomm was the company that invented 3G. They invented 4G. Now they're inventing 5G. They own all of those patents. 
that are now mm, that would have been crazy. Qualcomm is licensing that to Apple and Samsung, Google, Android, like all that stuff. Not to mention all the cars that we're trying to connect on the roads nowadays. Like the patents are used everywhere. And then you have Verizon and at t Like literally you're talking about fees on fees on fees, which is a tremendous amount of revenue. And if you own the portfolio patents, which I mean, they already, like I said, they run the world on technology. I mean, you can command whatever price you want. And so that's why you see, I remember it was like a year or two ago, the CEO just acquired a ton of stock in like the $500 or something share level. Like they just sit back and then you talk about the dividends. So let me run through the dividends real quick. So you mentioned the yield, the dividend yield of one second, trying to find out where I am. There it is. Current yield is 3.35%. The annual payout being about $18 a share, payout ratio only about 44.9% and a five-year annual growth rate of 28% on your dividend. And that's, and that's compounded annual growth rate. Compounded annual. Yeah, the yeah. Kager. Exactly. I mean, incredible though. The dividends there, they have like the steady stream of revenue. They have Apple is like one of their biggest customers, not to mention everybody else in the world because they operate in all territories. So absolutely wild. Just absolutely wild. Um, Josh, want to run through the rating summary and the factor grades for everybody real quick, as well as the dividend grades from Seeking Alpha, because we always take a look at those. Seeking Alpha authors have a buy on the stock. Wall Street analysts are a buy, and the quant system is a hold at this moment in time. The factor grades are a C for valuation, a D plus for growth, A plus for profitability, B plus for momentum, and C plus for revisions. Now look at that profitability real quick. A plus across the board. Three months ago, six months ago. I mean, the, the company is just profitable, as we know. Like you hear 50% of revenue is free cash flow. I mean, come on. All right. So let's look at the dividend grades real quick as well from Seeking Alpha. Obviously, dividend safety is a B minus. Dividend growth is an A plus. Dividend yield is an A. And dividend consistency is a B plus. And there, of course, as well, is what you can see last announced dividend, $4.60. Dividend growth for 11 years straight. Five-year growth rate, twenty-eight percent, and everything else that we mentioned as well. So now I got a quick question before we jump, and I, I I don't know the answer to this, and I don't know if you do either. But the dividend growth right there for eleven years, I'm curious, like, have they ever not paid a dividend and growed it? Or I mean, you know, what I'm saying is is this just a company who? I mean, I think we saw back in you know they around that fourteen dollars a share in two thousand nine. Like, is it has they been paying and growing a dividend since forever? Well, it goes back to, let me go back and make sure I get the exact date right. And when we did the history thing at the beginning of the episode, right? So it was Broadcom was founded in 1991 by the Henrys, as I mentioned. Um, obviously, I don't think they really kicked it in the gear. I think it was 1995. One of the Henrys actually became full-time and then they started from there. They're actually out of Los Angeles, funny enough. Uh, they had a condo on the west side of the city. They're not Silicon Valley, which I think is pretty cool. Um what year was it? So 2015, Avago bought Broadcom. Made, so I don't see... 2009 is when Avago Technologies went public on the NASDAQ. Um, I'm not sure about... So on, before 2015, it does show that they, sh they paid out a dividend. Um, on the consistency, I'm going back here to the dividend history. Bear with me one second. In the tenure and the max... So 2011, we got 10 years of data, a little bit more here. 2010, they did pay out a dividend of seven cents back then, but that's also when the share price was, you know, 14, 14 bucks. Yeah. So, so there, there, no real risk here to see a company pay a big dividend. You know, some of saw with both Disney or airlines and things of that nature. I mean, this is a company who's paying a dividend uh, very regularly and has every intention to continue doing so. 
Yeah. And Jacob did point out UCL UCLA professors. And actually one of the Henry's was a, uh, or the UCLA student that then got invited to be like the doctorate or something. I mean, both of them are very interconnected with UCLA. I did read a little bit about that. Uh, Henry asked any regulatory risk for patent monopoly potentially Henry, you gotta remember patents fall off, uh, over, I think it's 20 years. So they have 20 years to monetize as much as they can. You'll see this a lot in the drug world as well. When you talk about prescriptions and everything else, when, when you look at the big pharmaceutical companies, they have to continue to buy new patents. And that's what Broadcom's trying to do here, I think. Um, as I mentioned, VMware has their early on patents that are going to fall off here within the next few years from the early 2000s, uh, or some maybe already are, um, and those will become public domain. But then you got to remember, like you're building on top of those patents. So I think it's more about just like, how do we get the smartest engineers to work for us while we just acquire their companies? Yep. Yep. Uh, any questions from anybody? I hope you enjoyed the episode. We, I mean, there's a lot to go into with Broadcom, VMware. Can I ask you, Austin? I mean, if you had to take your gut, your gut instinct, is the VMware acquisition with Broadcom going to go through? I'm going to say yes, just because I feel like that Broadcom has done a, such a good job of proving two regulators i'm sure in the past obviously qualcomm is a different story but proving to regulators in the past that they deserve to do these specific things it does not you know break any antitrust you know yada 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 um i think it will go through i'm i'm inverse hankwitz boom okay i'm gonna say i don't think that this one makes it through with the overall government regulatory environment that we're in right now with how much they already control with how much vmware has that is crucial to to certain technology. I mean, I only I only skimmed the very very point zero 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 one percent of their patents when I was looking at it. Like it's endless, and it's like the biggest thing countries are thinking about right now is what patents are used within military missiles and everything else. Mm-hmm. That is where the world's at right now. And I don't think I mean the deadline for the EU thing was actually yesterday. And when that news press came or that news uh, press release came out saying, hey, we're going to dig deeper in this. They're like, we really need to make sure with everything going on that this is kosher because Broadcom still has a lot of ties to China. And the whole thing buying Qualcomm is, well, if Broadcom buys Qualcomm, will China then let, uh, what's that company? Hawaii? 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 Yeah, uh, Huawei. 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 Yeah. Um, they were like, are they going to control 5G of the world? And that's where like America was like, absolutely not. So I think they're doing a lot of detailed and deep analysis into these acquisitions. And with this one being that large for that price tag and everything else, I'm not sure it's going to go through, but we'll see. We will see. That time we'll will tell. Back. We'll time circle will tell. back. Happy, yep. happy holidays. Yes. Happy holidays. Texas, Merry yes. Christmas. Happy Hanukkah. Whatever you guys are celebrating. Obviously, hope you guys like the episode. If you have stock ideas for the future, like I said, this one was pitched by John in the chat. Obviously, you can email us as well. Investing experts at seekingalpha.com. You can find me over on LinkedIn and you can find Austin on Seeking Alpha Cashflow Freaks. He puts out amazing content articles every week. Obviously, I pulled pulled the Nike. He talked about the retail investors. I mean, a lot of good stuff there. Obviously, he's on Twitter and TikTok as well. And everybody, we hope you have a great rest of the week. Enjoy the holidays. Stay warm out there. Have a little hot chocolate. Maybe spike it if you're into that. A little apple cider action. Who knows? Enjoy yourself. Yeah, enjoy yourself. So, all right, guys, we're going to get on out of here. Vita, it's great to see you as well. You're here every week. We love that. And all the rest of you that are here joining and hanging out with us. Josh, let's get on out of here. Everybody have a great rest of the week. Investing Experts Podcast, Broadcom. Goodbye. <laughs>